Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. You know, every now and again, just as an exercise in humility, I find it interesting to sit around the House of Kraus with someone who is so much smarter than me that it's almost unnecessary for me to be in the room. I am just simply an ornament. I am a part of the furniture listening to the wisdom being spouted by my guests. Such is the case with Nino Ricci. He is a Canadian novelist. Uh, you know lots of his books. Uh, the Lives of Saints was uh, his first novel. Huge success. Uh, turned into a movie with Sophia Loren. We talk about that uh, a little bit later on. Uh, he wrote In a Glass House, Where Is She Gone? Testament, The Origin of Species. We're talking about a book called Sleep. Sleep is uh, a, a novel about a man named David who is a successful novelist who descends into sleeplessness over the course of the story. Powerful stuff, and at least, I think, semi-autobiographical. We talk about this, you'll get here. You don't need to hear me rambling on about it right now. But he's a fascinating guy. We talk about a lot of things. We talk about sleeplessness, the effect it has on you. We talk about writing. We talk about Sophia Loren. It's a wide-ranging conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here's Nino Ricci. This book, was sort of birthed out of your own issues with sleeping. And we all take it for granted, but when you, you know, get right down to it, you talk to people and they say, oh, I, I had a terrible night's sleep last night. I haven't slept in weeks. That was sort of your situation, right? Uh, pretty much. Uh, I mean, sleep is something we don't notice much or don't give much shrift to until it becomes a problem, really. And I was like that. And I had very bad what they call sleep hygiene uh, in that... I was not regular in my hours. I went to sleep late and, um, uh, you know, would wake up at, you know, odd hours. I, I didn't sort of follow the, the normal diurnal rhythms that, uh, that nature has meant us uh, to follow uh, and really thought sleep was just a kind of nuisance that you had to put up with. I think a lot of people feel that way. Uh, or certainly I have at, at various times in my life, yeah. especially when you're busy and you've got things going on. It's like, oh man, I've got to, I've got to take a chunk out of my life and, and not yeah. do anything. And you forget the importance of that. Very much. And, and I think there, there's also this, this feeling that there's something almost uh, shameful or immoral about sleep. Right. You know, if you need too much of it, there's something wrong with you. And, you know, people pride themselves on being able to get by on, you know, four hours of sleep a night and, uh, and I was someone like that who always tried to shave that, you know, that last hour of sleep mm -hmm. off and feel more productive. Say, if only, if only I could wake up a bit earlier and get a bit more writing done. Uh, and eventually it caught up with me. Uh, and uh, I started getting, uh, started finding it very hard to, to stay awake uh, during the day and hard to sleep at night. Uh, and those, you know, the rhythms that I had taken for granted began to fall apart. And I was drawn into the whole world of sleep studies and sleep science. And and it, it turned out to be quite a fascinating place, in fact. Well, and, what was it? You were having trouble with your shoulder. Wasn't there like a, a, a twitch or something in your shoulder or your neck? That was oh. one of the things that kind of was, uh, a, well, was, a, was uh, a sign? It, there was a uh, there was a related symptom that I only realized very late uh, in the sort of diagnostic process right. was somehow related to the uh, uh, to the sleep issue, which was this uh, it was a kind of flutter I'd feel really at the back of my neck, like like someone had 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 brushed a 
a feather or a knife back there. Really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out, you know, what was causing it. And I started noticing it happened a lot when I was, you know, with friends and, you know, joking, telling jokes, and I'd feel that flutter. Uh, and then it, it started getting a little more severe, and I'd noticed my... Uh, you know, if I was standing up, my, my knees would give way or I'd, you know, I'd feel this momentary feeling of, you know, how you say, you're, you know, you're laughing uh, so hard, your, your knees mm-hmm. gave way. Well, right. it was like that. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, it, that was how I, I, I sort of ended up self-diagnosing this, this condition. There's something called uh, cataplexy, which is, uh, you know, the medical description is a loss of muscle tone, which means you essentially go paralyzed <laughs> uh, in an instant. And uh, and that happens to all of us every night when we dream. Uh, because right. if, if our muscles were active uh, during our dreaming, we would try to act our dreams out and we would be punching our partners <laughs> or jumping out of windows or whatever right. happens to be happening. So whenever we dream, our brain shuts off our muscles so that we're essentially paralyzed. And a lot of us have had that experience of, you know, trying to drive a car, say, in your sleep and not being able to hit the brakes in time. And that's sort of an offshoot of that, that, uh, that paralysis that sets in for us. Uh, well, with this particular condition, uh, with uh, the, the actual uh, condition that I, that I was eventually diagnosed with was, uh, was narcolepsy. And a side symptom of narcolepsy is this thing called cataplexy, where in the middle of the day, uh, and it usually happens during intense states of emotion when you're laughing or sometimes when you're angry or it happens to some people when they're having sex. Uh, the, the switch will misfire. The REM switch will think, oh, this is a dream <laughs> and turn off your muscles. So you go instantly paralyzed. Uh, and this happens uh, uh, apparently in animals as well. They've diagnosed this in dogs and you can see... Uh, uh, online YouTube videos yeah. of this happening, um, and uh, yeah, from one second to the next, your uh, your body just shuts off. Your brain doesn't shut off. You're still totally conscious. You're not asleep. You're not fainting. You're 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 aware of everything, but you cannot move, and you just collapse. It might last for a second. It might last for you know five, ten, fifteen seconds, but it's a uh, it's a scary instant. I can tell you that. Absolutely. And so, how did it manifest itself in your life? Uh, well, I started, it, it, you know, I started noticing that yeah. uh, usually when I was having fun, uh, and usually when that's the cruel irony yeah, of it, isn't it? <laughs> that's the cruel <laughs> irony. Uh, and usually when I myself was getting off particularly good ones, right? Uh, uh, the uh, that switch would go off, and I, and I think in some ways actually my sense of humor had improved because I'd get like these great lines, uh, but the instant I tried to get them out. <laughs> The switch would go off. So it was as if I, you know, I'd, there was a spot in my brain where humor and dream were, were, were too close together. Uh, with some people, it's, uh, you know, it's anger uh, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, it, some other heightened state of emotion. Uh, and it, it may just be that, you know, the, the wiring of the brain is such that there's a, a border there that's kind of slender, and, uh, and sometimes you slip to the other side of it. You went to sleep studies, and you're, you're being treated for this. Now, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn, uh, or how did you learn to deal with this so that it doesn't happen again, or does it still happen? 
Uh, it doesn't happen much now. M- most of the treatment is, uh, I have to admit, uh, is is chemical. Right. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, the, the the idea is to try and get as as much uh, you know good sleep as you can uh, during the night. Uh, and uh, um, uh, and usually I, I will now also you know nap at at one point uh, during the day one sort of well targeted twenty minute nap sort of just after lunch uh, can do wonders and I you know I'd recommend this for for anyone but yeah <laughs> it certainly is sort of uh, crucial for me um, but um, the you know the the real uh, issue with a condition like narcolepsy is that the the mechanisms that 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 would in most people divide your day into 16 hours of wakefulness and eight hours of sleep have gone awry. That switch is not working. Uh, The only reason most people are able to manage that is because the body during the day is constantly pumping stimulants into your system, sort of natural stimulants. And at night it's pumping, you know, melatonin and other uh, chemicals that that keep you asleep Mm -hmm. for eight hours, if you're lucky. Uh, and once those switches are not working, then, you know, you might, I can't, I can't sleep on my own for more than, say, an hour or so at night without waking up. Uh, that's about the maximum. Uh, if I'm lucky, two hours beyond that, uh, I would just be waking up yeah. uh, every, sometimes every 15 minutes uh, or just in this kind of twilight sleep where I'm half awake and and where it feels like I'm almost like I'm hallucinating yeah. as opposed to actually sleeping. Uh, so, you know, I take stuff at night <laughs> to put me into deep sleep, uh, which is usually what's lacking in, in, a, con- in a condition like narcolepsy. And, uh, and, and, I, and during the day, I take, you know, the stimulus that my body isn't providing me with right. to, to, to keep me alert through and- the day. Do you did you fear that a lifestyle change like this? Now, clearly, it needed to be made. But you know, the, people have ideas about lifestyle linked to creativity. Oh yes. And were you afraid? Like, very if much. I change everything, uh, you know, the, the angels go away. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very much. Yeah. I'm still afraid. But yeah. you know, I was afraid before. Right. <laughs> as well. Uh, because you don't know what it is. Yeah. And you never know. I think that's why many writers are very superstitious because they think, okay, this worked before, so I cannot change it in any way. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I have found is that you can change things and you can still uh, produce. Uh, uh, so I've changed aspects of my process uh, not related to sleep. For instance, I never used to talk about my projects at all until they were almost done. Yeah. And then I, you know, I started trying out talking a bit more, and I found that I would get information from people that would end up, end up proving very useful. So, so I've become a little less superstitious about that, for instance. In terms of uh, the sleep, well, I need the sleep in order to work, in right. order to for my brain to be fresh well, and enough. stay alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, for those synapses to fire and things to come together. So, so yeah, I don't have that much choice in terms of uh, what I, uh, you know, what kind of regime I'm going to follow. Right. Uh, and I need these uh, medications really to get, to get by. Uh, I did notice, you know, early on I was. Uh, using sort of experimenting with different ones that had been prescribed, right. not that I got off the internet. <laughs> um, and, uh, and you know, one of them that was supposed to be the new uh, wonder drug of the day, I would find that I could not 
work uh, when I took it, that I'd sit at my desk and I'd, you know, I'd write a sentence and then I'd write another sentence and then I'd write another version of the same sentence and then I'd end up with 15 versions of the same sentence and I could not make an aesthetic decision right. <laughs> about which one was the best and it was it was maddening. So clearly that particular medication was not working for me, but uh, it's kind of a trial and error thing. This is a years-long process. This doesn't yes. happen quickly. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, we in the last segment, we talked about some of the issues that got you interested, I think, in writing mm -hmm. a book that sort of centers around sleep and sleep deprivation. Uh, tell me what keeps you going for six years. It was six years to write this, right? Pretty much, yeah. Tell me what keeps you going on one story for six years. Do you work on it every day? Do you, how does it work for you? Uh, well, things do get in the way. I, you know, I had jobs yeah. <laughs> during that time. I was teaching off and on at uh, various places. I, uh, I taught a, a course down in uh, Princeton during part of that time. So yeah. I was commuting back and forth. I taught a, a course in Massachusetts as well. So um, uh, so there are things like that, uh, just sort of life things and money-making uh, things that, uh, that get in the way. Uh, but um, when I'm, you know, when I have a chunk of time, and I had large chunks of times where I was strictly writing, I write every day or five days a week. I try to, I try to uh, live a, a sort of normal cycle so that I'm in sync with the rest of the world. Uh, and it can be easy as a writer not to be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you become very isolated very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and that's a big danger uh, because that's the, the hardest part of writing a novel is it, over that period of time is that you're the only one who knows it and you really have no objectivity. You have no idea if this thing has any worth. And that's, that's the hardest point, sort of around the four-year mark or the three-year mark or whatever it is where you think, oh, my God, <laughs> what is this? And what am I wasting my time on? And, and there's no one who can tell you otherwise. That's the hump you have to get over. Yeah, my... I write books as well, but on a much different level than you do. I write pop culture, nonfiction books. So I write mm -hmm. about films. I write about music. And mm -hmm. the, the longest uh, I've ever spent on a book is about two and a half or three years, I think. But that was a big research for I did 200 and some odd interviews mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. Uh, but it's right. You, you start to second guess yourself after a certain amount of time because I think you get so involved in what's in front of you mm -hmm. that you be, almost become blind to mm -hmm. it. Which I Very think much. is the danger. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. Do, do you use readers? I know a lot of uh, writers, and I'm not sure how we feel about this, but use what they call like proto readers or something, beta readers. They they give out unfinished manuscripts to them and say, "Just read this. Am I on the right track? Do, you, do is that part of your process?" At uh, all? I don't do that. Uh, I. You know, until a very late stage, right. uh, I won't show it to anyone because I'm not always sure exactly what I'm trying to do, uh, though I always have the sense of this voice at the back of my head trying to tell me <laughs> what to do. Yeah, yeah. And I'm afraid that if I start bringing in other voices, I won't be able to hear that one at the back of my head and I will just lose my way. So I wait until I reach the stage where I feel like, okay, I've taken this as far as I can on my own. Now I really need someone to show me that last bit. Douglas Copeland told me one time that it's almost like he hears the characters telling mm -hmm. him where the story should go. So in this mm -hmm. case, was David Pace 
in the back of your head telling you where the story should go? Yeah, this was a case where, uh, uh, you know, I was dealing with a character who I didn't know very well when I started writing the book, who was not like me. Uh, I'm not sure where he came from. I couldn't point to a clear model in the real world or in fiction that he came from, and yet he was there. Uh, so one of the reasons the book took so long, I think, is because it, it took me a while to sort of get to know and figure out where it was he was trying to go. And how do you do that? Is that just like long contemplative time spent thinking, or is it in front of a computer writing and, and tooling around until you find it, or how does it work? It, it, it's better if you're in front of a computer. Like my best ideas come to me when I'm actually writing as opposed to when I'm sitting around thinking. Right. Uh, but uh, but some of it is being at the keyboard and thinking. So arriving at a moment that doesn't, you know, you imagine going one way and it doesn't feel quite right. Uh, and maybe trying to write it differently or just visualizing it fully. Sometimes it's as simple as that, just by actually seeing the scene fully in your head, moment to moment, the truth of it will somehow come out. Uh, and uh, yeah, there are often those, those moments of, of insight in, in the writing of a book where you suddenly see, oh yeah, I thought it was this, which is you know, maybe at level A, but is actually this, which is three levels down of right. complexity and sort of psychological nuance. And you wouldn't be able to see that until you actually sort of sat in that moment. And, and I guess around. that's where they say you have to be able to kill your darlings. You have to, Very you much. know, something that you yeah. have worked on and labored mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. uh, in my second to last book, I spent a month working on a very detailed, almost frame by frame of the movie I was writing about and uh, ended up cutting it. Not a word of it appeared yeah. in, the, in the book and it killed me, but it had to be done. Yeah, yeah. That's such an important rule. Uh, and, I, and I would strongly support it. But the other side of it is that often having done that work is important in its own way because it's it's taught you the material in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reader doesn't need to see it because it's it's somehow present uh, in the other work that you've done. Are you yeah. a, a physical book person or are you someone who uh, is okay reading on I computer? will welcome any format. Yeah. Uh, I read a lot of ebooks uh, just because it's convenient. I can carry several books around on my iPad. Uh, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, mm -hmm. which is also very convenient. I can listen to them when I'm uh, jogging or brushing my teeth. I do a lot of my research that way now. Right. Uh, and I still love to sit down with a, an actual physical book in my hands and... Yeah, yeah I'm sort to... of like you. I'm all over the place with it. I, I do like the convenience of being able to carry around 20 books on my iPad and, yes. and go through them uh, yeah. quickly and easily. Yeah. Uh, your new novel is called Sleep, Six Years in the Making. Uh, the main character, David Pace, we've just talked about, uh, is a man who seeks more and more stimulation to feel alive. Mm -hmm. uh, he has uh, trouble sleeping and it, it pushes him. So... We've talked about, I guess, your personal experience with it. Now, tell me about translating that to the page, figuring out how to tell a story that is, I mean, if you want to look at it, I mean, there are, I guess, similarities between you and David in the sense that you're both best-selling yes. authors and, you know, yes. sleep issues <laughs> and that kind of thing. So yep. tell me what's autobiographical or if you don't, if you can, or what isn't, or, or how you meld all that to create a novel of a work of yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Uh, well, you know, Alice Munro talks about uh, needing a bit of starter dough whenever she writes uh, <laughs> uh, a story, and often that's a historical item or something that's right. true in the world. And I and I often feel that way when I write fiction. I want something I can say, okay, this I know, <laughs> yeah. because I felt it or I've seen it or I've been there. Uh, so there's always something like that. And with this character, the uh, the sleep disorder, I guess, was that. Uh, and then, you know, because most writers' lives are actually too boring to make good fiction, uh, <laughs> you try and push it in some direction that will be interesting and right. that will strain the character and will bring out, uh, you know, nuance and layers of meaning that you couldn't get from your own life. And and in this case, I wanted to look at sleep, you know, as a real thing and and its complexities and all the all the complicated things that actually go on in sleep in terms of forming who we are and what we are, uh, down to really constructing our identities and the way in which we, we think of ourselves when we wake up, uh, but also to explore some of the metaphorical levels, uh, you know, uh, Sleep as uh, you know, are we uh, asleep uh, in terms of some of the things we 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 don't recognize in our right. society? Is in some ways for David is this you know increasing search for stimulation, which is you know not unlike uh, a situation that many of us find ourselves in in the present world, where we're constantly getting new devices, we're constantly getting new media and new ways to amuse ourselves and. And yet, it's never quite enough. We're always waiting for the next hit. Uh, is that a form of sleep? Does that, in a, in a kind of way, cut us off from from a, a deeper understanding of what's going on around us? Uh, he's there's an implicit comparison that goes on in the book between um, you know the Roman era, which he studies, which was a sort of an era where people were see- seeking increasingly outrageous stimulation, yeah. amusing themselves to death. Almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, are we in a similar kind of situation? Situation now, so uh, so I always start a book with something personal, that that little personal bit that's like the starter dough, and then try to find you know the larger cultural relevance of that uh, that thematic, and and go in that direction. Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Uh, had an ad that ran in Rolling Stone magazine years ago when I first started writing, and I had this on my bulletin board above my desk for years and it said, you know, Kurt Vonnegut gets 10 rules of telling a story and the first one was tell a good story and then the next nine were keep it simple. Mm-hmm. And the, the book is layered with complexity as we just sort of discussed but I do think that sort of the 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 there there is a simple like a I guess simplicity is not exactly the word I want to use but there is a that's all right the, but 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 I I think it's I okay. like that word I, I like it too I like it too I and mean, people see it as a negative but I don't I I don't yeah. I think that the ability to pare down your thoughts uh, is in some ways the the less is always more mm-hmm. I think yes oh I'm with you there I and in fact this book was twice as long in the previous draft and. Uh, and I, uh, I cut with my editor about half of it, and it's a much better book as a result because I was able to see the book more clearly right? Uh, and what really mattered. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I had a radio producer early on in my career who told me that when a book fails, it almost always fails on first principles, uh, the right. kinds of principles yeah, that yeah. Vonnegut was talking yeah. about. If the, if the bones aren't right, uh, then, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how... how how profound your message is, it's not going to get through. So I was very conscious with this book that I wanted it to be a book that, you know, really grabbed readers and held them, you know, right to the last moment. And that to do that, you have to keep it, uh, you have to make sure the bones are 
are right. Uh, and uh, and I was you know conscious of structure and conscious of uh, of narrative and conscious of trying to keep it moving in a very particular kind of way so that readers would be brought along. Do you work with the same editor? On all I have your books? For, for the past three books, I yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, that's important. That relationship. I don't think you can underestimate how yeah. important that relationship is because can be. Yeah, it, or it can be. I mean, I think uh, David Cronenberg always says, you know, in his early films, he edited them and he knew what the story was, so he would just chop and slice and anything that didn't seem to need to be there. And he goes, as a result, some of the early films don't exactly make sense. I know what they mean, he says, mm-hmm. but uh, but the average yeah. person may mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And I think that the editor, in, in your case, a book editor, mm-hmm. as you say, you cut half the manuscript down. Mm-hmm. You need someone yes. to guide you a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, if you find an editor who can understand what you're trying to do even better than you understand yeah. it, then yeah. you're 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 very lucky. And I, you know, I feel I, I have an editor like that. So uh, you, you don't want an editor who's going to come in and try and impose their own vision mm-hmm. on the thing. But when they can get inside it and see where you know what's going to really make it better, then then you're uh, you've struck pay dirt. It's that second set of eyes. Yeah. 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 Now I've read in a Quill Inquirer uh, interview with you uh, that. You want to try and take the reader to uncomfortable places. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's talk. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left in this segment. Let's talk a little bit about the uncomfortable places that sleep takes people. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, David uh, is a, uh, I mean, he's not a like, a like, an especially likable character yeah. from the start. And he's done some bad things. He's cheated on his wife. He's, and so on. I won't sort of give away the, the story. And as the story goes on, he does more and more uh, bad things. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, I'm not uh, certainly presenting him as a role model. But uh, uh, I think one of the things that, fiction does is it allows us to explore, uh, you know, dysfunction. It allows us to explore urges that we all have that, you know, go back to our deepest instinctual nature, but that we're not allowed to express and really wouldn't want to express, right. but, uh, but that we ought to understand. Uh, and I think that was what I was getting at with David. I mean, he is as unlikable as he is, he is a kind of millennial male. You know, he's he's facing, for instance, the demotion of the male in uh, uh, in our time. Uh, no longer the uh, uh, you know the 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 primary gender. Uh, right. And his first book uh, is called Masculine History. So there's clearly this this impulse in him to want to recapture that 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 past ascendancy, mm-hmm. uh, but he finds himself uh, in a situation where he's increasingly uh, uh, marginalized uh, as a result. So uh, he's dealing with those issues. He's not dealing with them well, but uh, the, you know, the book was a way for me to explore uh, some of the ways in which uh, we've become dysfunctional as a society for not, you know, not learning or not understanding those issues fully enough. Uh, he's, uh, you know, searching for more and more uh, and more various forms of stimulation. Again, uh, you know, this is true to our time. The The proliferation, for instance, of pornography uh, since the advent of the, uh, the internet, mm-hmm. I mean, you can get it in an instant. Anyone can get it. Any kid can get it. Uh, and, and a lot of young men 
are getting it <laughs> uh, in a way that no one can monitor and uh, and no one is trying to stop and you know it breeds us it does breed a certain kind of I'm not passing I'm mm-hmm. not passing a moral judgment here but it does it does breed a different kind of society than one that cuts it off you have won every other uh, literary award in the, your, your house do you have like an awards room at your house uh, no, my wife would not stand for <laughs> would that. Not, would at not all. enjoy <laughs> that. Uh, we were talking about uh, pornography. We were talking about. We started in the last segment by talking about pushing the reader to uncomfortable places. We mm-hmm. ended up talking about pornography a little bit, and we were saying mm-hmm. how the access to it is um, uh, so much more uh, available. Everything is so much more available to young people now than it used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. But And it's changed things. And mm-hmm. I think that it has shaped a generation's idea about what intimate relations are actually like in an unrealistic way. Uh, it, it may have done. I mean, I don't know how much research has been yeah. done and how much we understand it yet. Uh, I mean, I, I saw an analysis recently that said, well, young men are, are in fact, less likely to even care about dating because uh, they, you know, they have their pornography. Right. Uh, uh, so, I mean, that's this kind of unforeseen consequence. It's not the innocent world we grew up in. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, David at one point also starts getting into the, you know, the dark web. So right. the, the stuff you can't find through a Google search. And, and, and that apparently is, you know, about 80% yeah. of what's on the Internet. Uh, only, you, you have to know where to go to find it. And most of it is not legal. Uh, and it's not only sort of the hardcore pornography, but it's where you buy drugs, it's where you buy arms, it's, it's where you engage in all kinds of activities uh, that are illicit and, uh, and illegal, uh, and it's going on all the time. So uh, it was a way about, uh, of, of just, you know, trying to, to look at, uh, uh, you know, where we are right. <laughs> in the early 21st century and... Uh, things that most people in their daily lives either don't have to c- confront or uh, or don't have to think about, and and maybe you know getting them to think about them. Uh, what do you hope people take away from the novel, or as an author, are you just hoping they are entertained? That it's thought provoking for them. Do you do you have yeah. a message, yeah. or does it yeah. matter to you? I, I mean, I always go back to you know. Uh, I think it was Longinus, one of the classical thinkers. Delight and instruct is what you're aiming to do. Uh, So you want to pull them in and you want them to take something away. Uh, And, you know, instruct is maybe too teacherly a word. I'm not trying to instruct. I'm really just trying to get people to ask themselves questions. And I'm not trying to answer the questions. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to be aware of the world in which you live. I don't want uh, my books to just reaffirm people in their assumptions. I want them to question their assumptions. I want them to see the world in a slightly new way. Uh, uh, You know, Wordsworth talked about stripping the veil of familiarity from the world. So, yeah, looking at something you thought was one thing and realizing there's this whole underside beneath it. It's a lot more complicated. Uh, just as, you know, we take sleep for granted as this this kind of, you know, off switch in our heads, whereas, in fact, so much is going on, uh, so, too, in so many aspects of our lives. That's really interesting. Uh, you know, the, the idea that the author is a uh, someone just to illuminate what goes on in the world, but to get you to ask questions of yourself. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, there was... Uh, 
another uh, sort of critic talks about the mirror and the lamp. Right. Uh, so, yeah, you want literature to be a mirror of the world and to show what it's like, but also to to be a lamp, to, to show you maybe new directions or new ways of looking at things that you hadn't thought of. What questions should people be asking themselves after reading Sleep? Well, they should be thinking about sleep a bit more mm-hmm. and, and yeah. how important it is and how much uh, goes on while you're sleeping, but also about where we are in the present moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, are we down? I, I'm not a I'm not a, a Luddite. I'm not right. sort of opposed to technological change. Uh, but, it, you know, any any period of rapid change involves uh, major disruptions uh, and and a rethinking of fundamental questions. Where are we in terms of gender relations? You know, there was a period where you couldn't talk about biological difference, say, between male and female right. because everything was socially constructed. Well, I think that was wrong. You know, I think there are biological differences between the genders and we need to take them into account. Otherwise, we are at cross purposes in terms of how we're going to move forward. Um, you know, where are we with technology uh, in terms of, you know, what's available out there and this this kind of addictive loop, really, that happens that, you know, once you're getting constant simulation, it it sort of keeps upping the ante, then you need it more and more. You need, you know, you hate email, and yet if your inbox is empty, you feel bereft. Right. You're, you're waiting for that ping. Uh, you're waiting for the next tweet. You're, the like on Facebook, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And it becomes this addictive loop that just requires you to need it more and more. Has life become too complicated because of that? I mean, you say you're not a Luddite, and I get that, and neither am I, but I sometimes wonder about the the virtue of just going off grid and and not worrying so much about the likes on Facebook and the tweets yeah. and the inbox. I have to say that you know in those periods where I unplug myself and 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 go off <laughs> yeah. into just the physical world, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just look at things. Uh, and uh, I think we would all do well to remember that we are physical beings, that's where we get our our sense of, you know, being rooted in the world. Uh, at the same time, we're not going to stop technology, uh, but uh, we can decide uh, the, the way it's going to unfold in the world. And, and, and I think we have to uh, take charge of making those decisions and not let them be made by, you know, the larger entities that now control me- media, which are, are mainly interested in just selling things. Right. So. Now... I wanted to uh, talk, we, we have been talking about Sleep, your new novel, which is in bookstores and online and everywhere right now. But I want to talk about Lives of Saints. Uh, it was made into a big television movie with Sophia mm-hmm. Loren. Yes. I want to talk about Sophia Loren a little bit. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about... Uh, everyone did you, does. Did yeah. you have experiences working uh, with her? I did. I, uh, you know, I met her a number of times. Uh uh, I think she remembered me from yeah. <laughs> from one meeting to the next. The first time I met her, she was actually on the set of another movie, and my producer, uh, my producer had done another movie with her. And uh, she, I had my son was I think uh, about a year old at the time, and I was on set with my my wife, and so she she picked up my son and she kissed him on the cheek, and I saw <laughs> a photo of her lipstick on his cheek. That's awesome. He will have uh, that is better cherish. than an autograph. Yeah, yeah, very much. And uh, yeah, she was uh, she was very professional. I will yeah. say that. You know, she shows up on set uh, in the morning. She's there the whole day, and you know, when the day is done, she goes back to her her place. She has her um, uh, or she had her 
makeup person with her at all times. She was very conscious of of her public image. Right. Uh, I think at the time, in fact, she'd had some kind of health issue because she was seeming a bit frail. Uh, and I, I think she was anxious for that not to be known. Right, right. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, this was a number of years ago, so uh, I don't know uh, how she's doing now. That was her, I think it was her 100th movie, yeah. so she'd been at it for a while. But uh, but then, you know, behind the scenes, and you know, I was at a number of dinners, sort of informal dinners with her. Uh, when she let her hair down, she was still the, you know, the... The, the peasant girl yeah, yeah. Uh, that she'd been uh, in her youth and, and uh, mischievous and playful and, uh, and a little bit outrageous. Did it blow your mind, though, that something that you thought of in your head and, mm-hmm. you know, created mm-hmm. at home on your computer mm-hmm. uh, eventually finds life with a legend like Sophia Loren yeah, at the helm? very much. It and in must, fact, right? she had been an inspiration for the uh, character of the mother in the novel. Because right. uh, as I was starting the novel, I went back and rewatched uh, Two Women, La Chuchara is yeah, yeah. the title in Italian. Uh, and I thought, yeah, that's the kind of woman uh, I'm looking for. That was the movie that uh, she won an Academy Award for. Right. And uh, so she'd been an inspiration for that character. Of course, she was too old to play that character by the time the movie was made. But for me, it was like the closing of a circle. You know, she she helped start the book and now she's in the movie. But it felt very unreal. You know, it felt unreal just to go on set and see that they'd spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to recreate a set that, you know, had cost me about five cents worth of paper and ink. (laughs) You know, I made that up. And well, now you're making it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. When you're, when you're writing, you know, you can write whatever. Yeah, and you can exactly. Write a, and, you know, you, you can write grand, as grand as you want, mm-hmm. and it costs just as costs much as writing a, exactly. a very small uh, set piece. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, I've started a new book. It's, uh, you know, I'll call it a historical novel set at the turn of the 20th century, right. which interestingly has a lot of parallels with the turn of the 21st century, yeah. though. Many people wouldn't uh, think that immediately, and uh, it's in its early stages. It's I'm very infancy. excited about yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess there's no timeline. These things take as long as they take. Is that it? Pretty much. I'm hoping it'll be less than <laughs> six years. And and what goes on? Do you work on one project at a time? Is it possible for you to um, have several ideas percolating and making notes for one and writing on a writing on another, or is it just a straight line? Yeah, I. I always have ideas percolating, and in fact, I have a list of about uh, 20 projects that I sort of keep notes on. Right. Uh, I'm hoping I will get to some of those <laughs> projects, uh, but and I always like to have the next book in my head right. as a way of feeling like all my eggs are not in one basket. Right. So when you know the present book is going badly, I can think, okay, but the next one's going to be great. <laughs> I always think, uh, as I finish one, I will never do this again. I will absolutely never. It's it, And that's usually around the point at which it's handed in and we're just waiting for it to come yes. out. There's a drag time of yeah. months sometimes. Yeah. And I think, no, that's it. I will never do this again. And then by the time the books actually arrive, you're like, hey, you know what, this is yeah. kind of fun. The fun it's, part is when the books arrive. Uh-huh. You know? It's like having a baby. It you, is. You don't. The women don't remember the pain. Of That's the, right. Yeah. By the time the next one is, is coming. But uh, yeah, I, I. You know, I often think that as well. But I. There's nothing else that I'm any good at. That's the problem. <laughs> That was Nino Ricci. We talked about his book, Sleep, 
It was a winner of the 2016 Canadian Authors Award for Fiction. It was a Toronto Star top five book, a Globe and Mail bestseller. It's available wherever fine books are sold or legally downloaded. So I suggest you run out or go to your computer, whatever your preference is, and check it out uh, because you got to get out of here. The House of Krauss is closed for another week. Be sure to come back next Monday, though. You never know who's going to stop by. And hey, maybe it'll be one of your favorites, and you don't want to miss that conversation. <laughs>